Mark 8, 27 through 35. I'll read, and then, um, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, some are saying John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say that you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly to them. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing the disciples, Jesus rebuked them back and rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you were not setting your mind on things of God, but things of man. And calling the crowd to, to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's our text this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, this, uh, this text before us is um, very daunting. It's um, such a, a, a huge text when it comes to your identity and who you are, Jesus. And I pray our minds would be open and you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit today to testify of the things of Jesus. We pray, God, that you would, that you would shut the, the mouth of, of, of the enemy. I pray against uh, Satan's works and his effects and the things that he tries to do to, to muddle our mind and muddle our heart. And just as Jesus just rebuked Peter Lord, we ask today that the things that in our lives are just not meshing sometimes or aren't clicking, that you would rebuke those things and get us back to where we see you clearly. And so we pray for clarity today. We also confess, like we talked about last week, God, we confess that we're blind. We confess, Lord, and I confess that sometimes we don't see everything clearly and we need you to open our eyes. And so we pray that you would open our eyes this morning. We look to you, Jesus, and we want the, the right way to see you. Not our own way. And we confess that we need you. And I ask God that you would help. You would anoint me and use me today. We love you. Praise things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been in the Gospel of Mark since we started the church in January of this year. And Mark's goal, the reason why we've been studying Mark is Mark's goal is to show us the real Jesus. That's his entire narrative goal, to reveal to us his audience, today that's you and me, his audience, who Jesus is, his identity. And in this book, the book of Mark, we see the raw, unadulterated, unmessed with Jesus. We kind of get Jesus for who he really is. And what we've found so far in this book is that often this Jesus that we see in the book of Mark, the Jesus that Mark reveals to us goes against some of our modern sensibilities, or maybe our postmodern sensibilities, or our post-postmodern, or maybe just San Franciscan sensibilities. There's certain things that when we look at these things in Mark's gospel, they're like, wait, you, you can't really mean that. There are things that Jesus does and things that Jesus says that challenge our modern sensibilities, or maybe, maybe just the way that kind of we, we were brought up or the way that we think. And here's what I mean by that. Many of us, 
don't have a problem with the miracles of Jesus. We've been teaching the first half of Mark is all about Jesus' miraculous deeds. You can't read through a section without seeing Jesus, seeing Jesus do something miraculous. He does all of these miraculous things, and yet we've been talking about Jesus' miracles for a year, and yet I've not had a single question about his miracles. No one's come up to me like, what about Jesus' miracles? We, we kind of all kind of pride ourselves in being spiritual people. I mean, we do yoga and whatever. We're all very spiritual. And so when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, we're like, Psh, I can handle miracles. Walking on water, healing the blind. Yeah, I can handle that. I can handle that kind of Jesus. So that doesn't really offend us, but here's what does offend us. Here's what does kind of rub against our modern sensibilities. Jesus' exclusive claims. That kind of, like, that, that makes us stand back. Like, wait, I can handle his miracles. I can handle him walking on water. But to say that he is the only way, what do you mean he's the only way to true life and salvation? I have friends of other faiths and, and backgrounds. What do I tell them? I, I can't really, that, that rubs me really weird. What do you mean that Jesus is the ultimate reality, the true reality? And this is really what challenges us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when teaching on this text in London, in his pulpit years ago, said this, there is nothing so uncomfortable as clear-cut biblical truths that demand decisions. I mean, even reading that kind of makes us squirm a little bit. Like, wait, you're, gonna, you're telling me you're going to read something, some clear-cut biblical truth, and you're going to make me do something about it. See, that makes us uncomfortable. And, and Dr. Jones, <laughs> Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, would say that there is nothing that makes us so uncomfortable as that, as, as putting something forth that's clear-cut, biblical, and then saying, make a decision. Well, we come to one of those truths today. Jesus asks his disciples the now famous question, who do you say that I am? And what we'll learn, we'll learn a couple things from the text this morning. We'll learn the expectations of Jesus got in the way of the disciples understanding him. And we'll also see that the reality of Jesus involves a cross. First, the expectations of Jesus got in the way of them truly understanding who he was and what he was there to do. We're at this turning point now in Mark's gospel. In Mark's narrative, it takes a turn. We began this last week. The, the story of uh, uh, Mark's story has two acts, two movements, two parts. Part one, act one, you know, um, movement one is who Jesus is. That's what Mark focuses on from chapters one through chapters eight and about a half. And this is all about Jesus' character. So the first half, when you're reading through the book of Mark, the first half of the book of Mark, we see miracle after miracle. We see healings and exorcisms, his compassion, his love, his care, his concern. Jesus is like breaking through social norms by teaching the un, uh, teaching everyone, by touching the untouchable, by breaking down gender barriers, seeking the lost, healing the broken, act one. Act two, what Jesus has come to do, that's act two. What he has come to do, his mission, chapters eight and a half through 16. And for the rest of the book, we'll see his mission, what he has come to accomplish. And this turning point in Mark's narrative happens right here with two stories. So the, it, the Mark's gospel hinges on two stories, and they're very important stories to get. The first one was this healing of this blind man, and the second is our text today, Jesus, 
asking his disciples, who do you say that I am, and the disciples' confession of who Christ is. And these two stories are tied together. In Mark, the way, the way Mark is telling the story about Jesus and about how people are coming to understand who Jesus is are hinged on these two stories. First of all, Jesus takes a blind man. We talked about this last week. There's a blind man brought to Jesus, and Jesus pulls him outside of the village, and then he spits in his eyes, okay? This is like a new thing. Spits in his eyes, and then he puts his hands on his eyes, and then he says, do you see anything? Jesus never really does this. Everything that Jesus does, he already knows. Like, he doesn't ask, hey, can you, can you hear? Or how's your hand doing? Or, you know, like he knows that he's done, he's, no, he's, he's healed. So for him to heal a man and go, how do you feel, is really random. How are you? Did it work? And Jesus, and this man says to Jesus, I see men, I see some things, I see men, but they look like trees. And my, um, my uh, Lord of the Rings joke was lost on you last week, so I'll spare you that again. But men, men aren't trees, and trees don't walk, okay? So this man sees, but he doesn't really see everything clearly. And so Jesus, he touches him again, touches his eyes again, he goes, how about now? He goes, oh. And it says then, I can see everything clearly and completely. Now, this is, this is the, the story that Mark hinges everything upon. Because at the first part of Mark's narrative, everyone is blind. Nobody can really see Jesus. They, the disciples even ask the question, who is this that calms the wind and the waves? Nobody knows who he is. But in the middle, they start to see him. But they see him a little bit fuzzy. They don't really see him. And this is why Mark shares this story and puts this story in the middle. Jesus touches this man, heals him, and then he can completely see. The disciples are about to get a touch from Jesus so they can start to see who he is. From that healing, Jesus takes his disciples to the place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi was predominantly a Gentile town. 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus has been doing most of his ministry. Now, historically, this city was associated with imperial rule. It was renamed and in honor of Caesar Augustus. This town was devoted, the city was devoted to and renamed in honor of Caesar Augustus. Herod the Great built this giant marble white temple to Augustus here. So it had all these, this like imperial rule undertone in this city. Not only that, it was also the site of messianic hope, according to Jewish tradition. And not only that, it was also the scene of a very violent death. During the great revolt of the Jews against the Romans, much of the Jewish population of the city was massacred on, massacred on this site. So this site was this, this made Caesarea Philippi this uh, fitting backdrop for the, for the story that Jesus is about to do, for this, for this getting into who he really is as he's there in Caesarea Philippi with all of these, with this background there. And on the way there, and on the way is an important thing. On the way there, Jesus asked the disciples, hey, where do, what, are people are, what are people saying about me? What is the mass media saying? What are the bloggers writing about me? Who do they say that I am? And they answer them. And what are they, what did, what did they ask from Jesus? Well, they're saying, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Some are saying that you're Elijah. Some are saying you're one of the prophets. Now, here's what that means. Now, we can't blow that off like, oh, they clearly didn't see Jesus. They have no idea who he is. This is what this means. They were using the people, this were the secular and religious people of the day. They were using the most powerful language available to them to describe who Jesus was. 
They were saying, you are up there with the greatest. Some of the greatest figures that ever walked in human history, you're up there with them. You're up there with John the Baptist and Elijah. Um, I think Matthew's gospel mentions Moses. You're up there with all of them. They're even going as far as to say, you're even supernatural in some way. Because Elijah was taken up in a flaming chariot. John the Baptist was just beheaded. and Normally people don't survive that sort of thing. And so they're saying, Jesus, you are supernatural in some way. Because you're like come back from the dead in some way. So you're like the greatest figure that's ever lived, and you're also some supernatural figure as well. That's what they were saying about Jesus. They were saying, you are great, if not even greater than the greatest. And I would say, and the text I think says, that this is the perception of Jesus from a human perspective. Jesus is a great human figure. That's what many people, maybe you're saying that, maybe people at your work say that, maybe your family, I know my family, a lot of my family says that, a lot of people that I know say this. Jesus was a great human figure, maybe even one of the greatest human figures that ever lived in human history. H.G. Wells said, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess that as a historian, that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of human history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history, yet he was not a believer. See, as great as that sounds, that's still seeing Jesus from a human level. Many people that I know think that way, maybe you think that way. Yes, Jesus is great, he's wonderful, he's a prophet, he's a religious, spiritual leader. He's maybe one of the greatest that's ever lived. But according to Jesus, that's not enough. He demands more. Because he turns to his disciples and he says, what, well, who do you say that I am? Saying he's great means nothing. Saying that he's the greatest even means nothing. There's something even deeper than that. And what is it? They say, you are the Christ. What does that mean? Peter confesses, along with the others, that you are the Christ, which means something way more than the other people were saying about him. Jesus didn't go, hey, what are people saying about me? And like some saying John the Baptist. He goes, oh, really? Some Elijah, woo, I like that one. Some of the prophets, that's cool. All right, let's go. Let's carry on. That's really cool. That's really neat that people are saying that about me. He's like, but what do you say? who do you say that I am? And they say, you're not that. You're not that. You're the Christ. This is what this means. By calling Jesus the Christ, they're calling him the anointed one of God. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed. And there was promised a king to end all kings that, were gonna, that was going to come. A king of kings. And he would be the anointed one to wrong every right. And they're saying, Jesus, that's who you are. You're the king to end all kings. You're the king of kings. You're the anointed one of God. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You are the true king. You are here to make everything right again. That's what Christ means. See, at this point, they start to really see him. Like, oh my gosh, they're seeing him. They're really seeing Jesus now. Jesus is like, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Jesus is like, yes, good job, awesome. With divine help, Matthew's gospel talks about this, with divine help, Peter and the others start to see Jesus. They finally see him. But then this is what Jesus says. Now, catch this. This is like the twist in the story. This is what Mark loves to do. He's like, oh, he brings you in and he twists it on you. Here's the twist. Jesus is like, right. He didn't say literally right. He affirms by saying, okay, I am that king. 
I am the king, but I'm not like the king you were expecting. This king must suffer and die. Listen, I'm not like the king you were really expecting. This king, this Christ, this Messiah must suffer and be crucified. I mean, this was unspeakable, unacceptable, and very unexpected. They didn't see this coming. Like, wait a minute, You're, you, you can't die. And look what Peter does. He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He rebukes Jesus. This is the same word used um, when Jesus like rebukes Satan and like cast demons out. This is not like an like a, like a easy word, like, hey, Jesus, let's maybe not talk about that. Rebukes him to his face. You will not die. You see, the Christ, and we have to understand this. See, you and I, we, we kind of get, oh yeah, Jesus is going to die on a cross. I get that. But you have to understand this. The Christ, by definition, is a, is a winner. The Christ, by definition, wins everything. He takes it all. He's the king. So when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, he's saying, you're going to win, Jesus. You're going to be the conqueror, and you're going to conquer all of our enemies. You're going to have a throne, and we're going with you. And I get like one of those puffy jackets. It's going to be awesome, and I can just sit next to you, and I'm going to have like a pet lion or something, and it's going to be rad. And we're going to be there ruling with you. Actually, that comes up in the narrative later. Hey, can we sit at your right hand and your left in your kingdom? See, they thought he was going to a throne. She's like, can we go with you? Jesus, you can't die. You've got to take the throne, man, and we're there with you. And we get like seats and everything. It's going to be, I get a horse and like, it's going to, it's going to be so much better than being a fisherman. I'm following you because you're going to make all of my dreams come true. Restore Israel. Take it back from Rome. Let's do this thing, baby. That's kind of what was going on. Now, you have to understand, that is what was going on. You and I kind of tend to read, like, to the end of the story, oh, yeah, 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 we know he's going to die, and oh, they didn't know that at all. They, in their mind, all Old Testament, they're like, oh, my gosh, you're king who's going to come and rule and reign, and we're going to go with you, right? We have expectations, Jesus. I didn't leave my job and my family to follow you for nothing. You're going to get us there, and I'm going to be there with you. I got your back. Let's go. Let's do this. So, Think about this. Anyone with Jesus' amazing powers, the things that he's done up to this point, his powers to silence the sea, end the, end the unclean spirits, to heal the sick with a word and a touch, to lead thousands, to actually feed even thousands with just a few scraps of food. This type of man is headed for glory and universal worship. Anyone with this kind of power and authority that Jesus had has no need to suffer on earth. He has no need. If he's hungry, food. If he's, he could make people see or blind, right? I mean, I would imagine if you can make people see, you could probably make them blind. So you can just go blind you, you're blind, you're blind, you're going to fall on your sword. You're gonna, he could do all of that. And this is what they're thinking. This guy's going to the top. And he, he, he cannot be a, such, he can't be a, a messiah that's rejected. How can he be such a Messiah? If he's really all of this, how can he be a victim of violence? See, for Peter and the others, the idea of a suffering Messiah is impossible. They didn't have a framework for it. They didn't have a paradigm for this kind of Messiah. This is what's happening. Listen, the purposes of Peter and the purposes of Jesus here collide. That's what happens. I have a purpose, and Jesus has a purpose, and they're colliding. 
Peter's purpose is you're going to a throne and we're going with you. And it's gonna be awesome. Jesus' purpose is I'm going to a cross. And actually you are gonna follow me because you're gonna have to take up your cross and follow me as well. You see what's going on here? See, Peter's like, you're going to a throne, I got, I'm following you. And Jesus is like, no, I'm actually going to the cross and you better follow me. And if you wanna come after me, you have to follow me and take up your own cross as well. And then Peter here is so furious because everything he thought about Jesus wasn't coming true. He pulls him aside and he's like, what are you thinking? You can't die? You can't suffer? And I'm surely not gonna suffer with you. There's no way. Peter had expectations about what Jesus was supposed to do. He was the Messiah, he was the Christ, the Savior, and because he was these things, this is what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to go to a throne. You're the Christ, this is how you work, and this is how you're going to win. Peter is trying to conform Jesus to his own expectations of what the Messiah should and should not do. And he begins to look at the plans and the ways of God through human eyes. Listen, don't miss that. He starts to see the plans of God and the ways of God through his human eyes. And you know what Jesus calls this? Satanic. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's not a kind word. I don't know the last time you called someone Satan. It probably wasn't like, it's not a good thing. If I called my wife Satan, she wouldn't be pleased with that. It's not like an endearing term. Oh, my little Satan. <laughs> That's not an endearing term. You don't say that. And then Peter, Jesus didn't tell Peter this as a joke, like, get behind me, Satan. And the disciples are like, ha ha, that was funny. That didn't happen. This was serious, okay? Like, we joke around. I call, I, I, I kind of maybe do, I mean, I, I make up names for my friends and I call them dumb things. It's a joke. This was no joke. Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Now, why would Jesus call Peter Satan? Think about that for a minute. I mean, Jesus didn't turn around and Peter was like fully demonically manifesting where he's like, he had like yellow eyes like Thriller or something and like fangs and he's drooling. He's like hunched over, he's like doing this thing or something. Jesus is like, oh my gosh, get behind me, Satan. He turns around and Satan is not that, Satan's a lot more subtle than that. That's not what happens. Why does Jesus call him Satan? Well, actually Jesus says it in the next verse, I mean the next phrase. Look at verse 33. He said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Here's why he calls him Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. Do you see Satan at work here? Look at this. Satan is at work. Not when we're like, not that Peter was like, again, had like all of a sudden had a pitchfork and a tail or something. When he turned around, he said this because of this. When we start to think about God with our human mind, with the mind of men, that's satanic. Listen to that. When we start to think about God with the mind of men, that's when Satan's at work. Now, what do I mean by that? Two ways. Two ways we look at God through the mind of men that I, that I probably could recognize really fast in my life and our lives, I should say. Number one, when we, when we make Jesus in our own image. And number two, when we try to make our plans God's plans. We try to bend God's plans to our plans. 
Like, God, I have plans, and they better be your plans. Let's talk about the first one, making Jesus over into our own image. See, many people see Jesus as a spiritual guru, a superhero, a cornucopia of of amazing advice, like turn the other cheek and um, love your neighbor and cast not the first stone. So we're like, oh, I love Jesus. I love his sayings. I follow the way of Jesus. How do you do that? Well, I turn the other cheek. Whenever someone slaps me, I go like this, and I turn, I go, go ahead, another one. Give it to me. I follow Jesus. And I love my neighbor. I love everybody. I love you. I love, I love me. I love everybody. I love my neighbors. I love my flatmates, my roommates, everything. I love everybody. And I don't cast the first stone. I don't judge anybody. Hey, do what you do, and I'll do what I do. And let's judge not. When we make up a Jesus in our own image, like that, Jesus always agrees with us. Whenever we, we argue anything from a theological debate or a moral debate, and you could even be arguing with yourself, Jesus is always on your side. That's how you know you've made up a Jesus in your own image. See, the problem with the Jesus that you make up, that you just choose to follow, that you just kind of pull and like, this is my Jesus, and this is who I'm going to follow. When you make up your own Jesus, that Jesus can't challenge you, and he'll never change you. You've made up a Jesus in your own image, and it can't challenge you or change you. Because you made up, up around what you like and how you want to live. Let me give you an example. If you're conservative, and I know there's only like maybe three of you in here, but if you're conservative, your Jesus is way, way moral, and American, and probably white. That's your Jesus. And what you say when you, when you tell people about, like, you know what, you just need to know, you need to do what you know you need to do. You better get right, or you're going to miss the rapture. And many of you don't know what that means because you're liberal. Now, if you're liberal in here, and this is probably most of us, This is, when we make up a Jesus in our own image, our Jesus is super, super forgiving, acceptant, and tolerant of anything and to everything. Because your Jesus drank wine, you can drink a quart of whiskey. (laughs) Like, hey, dude, my God drank wine, I could do whatever I want. He hung around with prostitutes, sinners, I can be around the most seedy situations, it's all good. Holiness, pshh whatever. When we make up a Jesus in our own image, he never, ever challenges us. He never calls us to holiness, only the holiness that we want to be. Like, I want, I I want, I want to do, I want to live this way, and I think Jesus would accept that, and uh, and do that, and whatever, and so I'm going to do that. Jesus in your own image never makes you more like Jesus. When you make up an image, a Jesus in your own image, one of the most devastating results is that you start to think that you're okay. If you're super conservative, you think you're okay and everyone liberal is just a nut job. But when you're, when you're liberal and your Jesus is that, you think everyone else, when you watch the news, everyone else is crazy. And you think you're normal. Can I just tell you you're not normal? That I'm not normal? That we need Jesus to change us? We need the Jesus of the scriptures to lead us and to guide us by the power of the Holy Spirit of God? And this is what we need. The real Jesus, the Jesus that Mark presents and the historic church uh, confesses is not simply 
a, a peasant Galilean, holy man, a good teacher, or an outspoken prophet. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah whom God sent to save his people through his death. We cannot make up Jesus into our own image. That is one way. Theologically, this happens every like three or four years in San Francisco. It's happened pretty much in the history of San Francisco. Every three, four, five years, some church loses its way. And they start to look at theology from the mind of men and the culture of San Francisco instead of, instead of submitting their thoughts to God. And I know that we can debate this forever. But we all have to confess that when we start to see, try to look at things from the human perspective, a, a mind of men, we get it wrong. The second way is we try to make our plans God's plans. You and I have such a limited view of our own lives. But we insist, and we insist quite forcibly as Peter did here by rebuking Jesus, that we know what's best for us. You know what's even funny? Peter thinks he knows what's best for the universe. You notice that? He's like, Jesus like, I'm going to the cross. This is the universal plan of God. And Peter goes, listen, I know that you run the universe, but let me give you a little bit of advice. Don't go to a cross, okay? Go to a throne. I know how to run this universe. I mean, he's trying to get in front of the universal plan of God. And don't you and I think the same thing, like when it comes to our own universe or the universe, like we could run it, we can do it. I have plans. I know how to do this. And we, this is exactly what happens. When we try to go, God, bend your will according to my will. This is exactly what Peter's doing. I know Jesus. And the Father, like, has this great plan, but there's sometimes, like, but I want my plan. My plan's way better. And this is exactly what was happening with Peter. See, they expected Jesus to be Moses-like in providing bread in the desert. This is why everyone followed him all the time in the desert. This is why I think John's narrative records when Jesus is crossing over the Sea of Galilee, because Sea of Galilee isn't that big. On a clear day, you can see across it. When they're, they're, Jesus gets in a boat and crosses the Sea of Galilee, the crowd sees where he's going, and he, they run around the sea to meet, them, meet him there. And they're like, can you feed us? Like, remember bread? Don't you give bread? You're like the, you're like the wonder guy, the guy with the bread? And, they, and Jesus is like, you're only following me because you're hungry. They thought Jesus was supposed to be some Moses-type figure that fed them. They thought, they expected Jesus to be a Joshua-type figure and leading a conquest that will recapture the promised land from the pagans. Like, Jesus, you're supposed to march right up to Jerusalem and take over, take back the promised land for us. That's why they tried to make him king by force. That's why they laid palm branches when he entered Jerusalem and said, Hosanna, save us. They thought Jesus, they expected Jesus to be David-like in establishing a triumphant kingdom with all of Israel's enemies as their footstool. This is why Peter drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was being arrested. But that wasn't the plan of God. This was the plan of God. And what they didn't see was that at the cross, 
Jesus would actually become the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between people and God and who died to bring us into a new and better covenant in his blood. Through the cross, Jesus is the true and better Joshua, who destroyed our real enemies, sin, death, and the devil, to bring us into true rest, rest for our souls. And at the cross, Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves, just like the children of Israel when they were up against Goliath. The true and better David, who destroyed the kingdom of darkness, and we didn't even have to lift a finger. And this brings us to our closing point. The reality of Jesus involves a cross. Jesus had to die. Look at verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer. It says that he must suffer. He must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. He must. He must go to a cross. Why? Why did Jesus have to go to a cross? In the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, it says that God creates everything, everything we see, everything we hear, everything, with a word. He spoke it, and it was. Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke land. He, he told the, the seashore where to stop. He spoke it all into existence. He spoke it. Exactly like Jesus did when he was healing throughout Mark's narrative. He speaks, and the wind and the waves, what do they do? They obey him. He speaks to the, uh, to the deaf, and, and, he, and he hears. He speaks to the blind man, and he can see. He speaks to the hand. Stretch out your hand, and his hand is restored. He speaks, and it is. God created everything in the same way. A word was enough. He speaks and it's done. But think about this. When God comes to deal with the problem of man, our sin and our rebellion, our alienation from God himself, a word is not enough. He can't do it with the word. He can't just say healed or forgiven and you're forgiven. He can't do that. A word is not enough to forgive. Here's the deal. You know exactly what this means. You know this. Some of you guys know this really personally. A word is not enough to simply forgive. When someone wrongs you, sins against you, hurts you, destroys something in your life, I mean really wrongs you, there's a debt that has to be paid by someone. There's a debt See, sin, like we talked about this in our sin series, sin creates some, a somethingness, a reality that wasn't there before. Sin creates a reality. And when someone wrongs you, there's a sense of debt that you feel, like they owe you something. If you've ever been wronged, hurt, something taken from you, you feel this same way. Someone has to pay. There's two options you can do. Two things you can do when someone wrongs you. The first thing is you can make them pay. I'm going to make you pay. In marriage, the way this happens in marriage is you deny them intimacy, both physically and emotionally. Happens all the time in marriages. You've wronged me, you hurt me, you're going to pay. You know what? I'm going to deny you emotional interaction, sexual interaction. I'm going to hold it from you. You have to pay because you hurt me. 
The way this happens in friendships is you might try to make them suffer. Make them suffer back. You can try to harm them emotionally or maybe even physically. Or maybe even like sabotage something of theirs. Like their car or their, I'm not, I don't want to give you ideas. But I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Like sabotage, they're going to pay. They hurt me. They stole this thing. They did this thing. They robbed me of this opportunity. They robbed me of something. They're going to pay. Or you may, might even just cut them off altogether. But you're going to make them pay. Or option number two, what you do when someone wrongs you, is you can absorb the debt. You absorb it. When you forgive and you refuse to be, you refuse those vengeful, vengeful thoughts or actions, when you forgive and you cover their sin with your love, it hurts. When you're like, when you deny, like, having ill thoughts towards them or wanting to, to repay them and like, no, I'm not going to repay them. I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to keep loving them. There's a pain involved. Even if they broke something of yours and you're just like, hey, it's cool. It's okay. You don't have to pay me back. Somebody has to pay you back. Either you pay yourself back or you just absorb the debt of whatever they broke. Or if it happens emotionally, the same thing happens emotionally. There is a debt there. There is something there that must be absorbed. You know this. And when you do forgive, when you say it's okay, there's suffering involved. Why? Because you're absorbing their debt. You're absorbing their cost. Sin creates reality, and the reason why Jesus had to die is because sin creates a reality that God cannot just ignore. Someone has to pay. Either you pay the debt, or he has to pay the debt. A word is not enough to absorb the cost. This is why Jesus had to die. Do you see why I open with that quote? There is nothing so uncomfortable as clear-cut biblical truths that demand decisions. Here's the truth. Here's the clear-cut biblical truth. Either you pay for your sins and your wrongdoings, either you absorb the debt yourself and be alienated and separated from God, or you make others pay for the wrongs they've done against you and you alienate yourself from them, or you look to Christ and see him as the Christ who had to die to bring us to God, to absorb our debt and our payment, to bring us to God. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm not going to a throne, I'm going to a cross because you're separated from God and the only way that you can be reconciled to God is if I pay your debt, if I absorb. At the cross, the incarnate Son of God became the incarnation of sin and corruption. And at the cross, every vile, foul, evil, dark, hideous trace of the fall was laid upon His sinless body. The spotless one became sin incarnate for us. And what Jesus demands then is that you follow him. Let's pray. Lord, I know that carried in our... Um, in our, in our hearts, and our souls, and our minds are, are these, these weights that, 
that we either even bear ourselves the wrongdoings that we've, we've um, done or things that other people have done to us. And to be honest, Lord, we can't carry these things. They're too heavy for us. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would turn and see Jesus. That we would not try to make your agenda our agenda in a way that tries to bend your will, bend what, you, what your plan is into ours. I, pray, I, know, I know that many of us need to repent of that. Just thinking that we kind of expect you to do this or that and to be honest, Lord, there's certain things that you do that we don't really understand. And I know, God, that there's I know that we see you sometimes wrongly and we kind of make you up in our own image. I ask you, Jesus, that you would change that. That you would give us a vision, a new, fresh vision of who you are. And we would fall in line in that. We want to be a, a community of people that are constantly repenting. That our Christian life would be one of repentance, constant turning away from the things that we think to, the, to your word and to who you are and your character and your love and your grace. And we pray, God, that you would make us just in love with you. So we confess our blindness to you, Lord, and we ask that you would make us to see. In Jesus' name, amen.